by way of disclosures, is that um, I had uh, spoken earlier this morning, 7 a.m. I see a, a different group today uh, than was at 7. And although uh, a lot can change in Vegas in five hours, I can tell you that nothing else needs to be disclosed as a result. So good there. I do have some preliminary comments, though, I would like to make here shortly. As far as our learning objectives, we could discuss the variation in state marijuana laws across the United States. Now, of course, this is about global legalization, and, but we're going to use the United States as perhaps uh, something in which we could maybe learn uh, that might be able to inform policy um, in the global market. Secondly, describe the challenges to accessing palliative medicines in developing countries. And third, to discuss the potential positive and negative outcomes stemming from the global legalization of marijuana. Now, to begin with, is the the question that I always like to uh, raise is, where am I in this marijuana debate? Well, of course, I'm in the middle of the road, uh, like I am in most everything. And, of course, as you know, is that if you're in the middle of the road, that doubles the chances of getting run over. Cannabis is a controversial area, and I certainly uh, enjoy engaging in controversial research. I certainly do not want to be the subject of that controversy. So consequently, it becomes important for me to say that I am neither for or against marijuana, and um, just like opioids. What I am in this for is the reduction of human suffering, and there might be an opportunity for marijuana to help that, there's certainly opportunities for opioids to help that. But my bottom line consideration is human suffering, not so much as to being for or against something. In fact, I've never smoked marijuana in my life, although many of my colleagues wish I would. In fact, it might be a good time to start. So, but nevertheless, I'm trained as a social scientist and an attorney. I have worked as a police officer, a defense attorney, and a prosecutor, as well as a federal investigator for the Drug Enforcement Administration. So I've seen a lot in the context of drug policy from different perspectives. So um, without further ado, I'd like to advance to ask this particular question. Why focus on marijuana, particularly medical marijuana, if it's legalization across the globe when legal morphine already exists? Well, The premise is, of course, that legal morphine is clearly accessible across the globe, and the short answer is it is not. So is the opportunity, perhaps, that marijuana could solve some of those problems, or could marijuana also create some of those problems? According to the Lancet Commission report in 2017, and I quote, In agonizing, crippling pain from lung cancer, Mr. S. came to the palliative care service, from an adjoining district a couple of hours away by bus. His body language revealed the depth of his suffering. We put Mr. S. on morphine, among other things. A couple of hours later, he surveyed himself with disbelief. He had neither hoped nor conceived of the possibility that this kind of relief was possible. Mr. S. returned the next month, but the clinic was out of stock of morphine. Mr. S. told us with outward calm, I shall come again next Wednesday. I will bring a piece of rope with me. If the tablets are still not here, I'm going to hang myself from that tree. Throughout most of our world, we find near total lack of access to morphine to alleviate pain and suffering. 
In fact, this was published in The Lancet as a diagram. It shows really the percentage of accessibility um, as far as morphine is concerned. And we see that in some countries like Haiti, they only have less than 1% of morphine available for their needs. Now, of course, the goal would be is that a country would have 100% of its uh, opioids. Here in Western Europe, they have 870% of the availability. Uh, it's really more about, it's in the context of availability as opposed to use. In Canada, it's 3,090%. In Nigeria, they only have 0.2% of their actual needs. This is a global crisis. And it resulted in me coming up with the exploratory ideas that could the global legalization of marijuana help or hurt the situation because this is clearly a human rights tragedy. Over 80% of the 61 million people who suffer across the world are in low to middle income countries with severely limited access to any palliative care even oral morphine for pain relief. You see, the thing, as we will see, is that with liquid morphine, it originates in its powdered form and can be mixed with water, and the cost, of course, is only pennies a day. Furthermore, nearly 2.5 million children worldwide die in need of palliative care and pain relief, and 90% of that suffering is avoidable. So why do these barriers exist in these low- and middle-income countries as to receiving palliative care? There's a variety of reasons. Some of them certainly are cultural. And it's certainly not so much a cost when we realize the cost of uh, morphine because it's off-patent. But it's also a deficit in regards to education. Some of the same factors that we see in the United States uh, among families and among healthcare practitioners about the appropriate role of, of morphine. There's also attitudes and concerns about addiction um, and the use of uh, narcotics. Certainly also is the idea of geography in rural environments. Here in the, in the uh, example that the Lancet used is this man had to travel two hours by bus. And in fact, it's just that some of these uh, of access to palliative care services are just simply not available because they are in rural environments. Now, but one of the most significant barriers uh, to receiving palliative care, particularly as it relates to um, the use of opioids, is that many of the barriers limiting access to pain relief are systemic and related to overly restrictive legislation, driven by a concern about the addictive nature of opioid medicines known as opioidphobia. Now, this is the Lancet findings and recognizing the significance of the impact. Now, I care about this so much is that I am in the process of building a nonprofit that would do something that government has never, ever done, and that is actually evaluating their drug control policies to see if they are effective. Are they doing what they're supposed to be doing? Are they ensuring appropriate access? Are they preventing abuse and diversion? This is something government does not do, and this is something that government needs to do. So... Can medical marijuana, in this idea that I had at least, uh, could it reduce suffering? Well, certainly there are, although we have limited information as to the efficacy of marijuana, in large part because of its prohibition, 
is that at least it may pot has the potential to reach rural areas that would not otherwise have anything else. Now, of course, when we're dealing with breakthrough pain, clearly opioids would uh, largely be more efficacious in that regard as opposed to marijuana. But one could imagine that if you're in a rural environment um, and you have no access to morphine, um, something is better than nothing at all. Now, would that also raise concern that if we have a legitimate product such as uh, liquid morphine and there's uh, concerns about access in, in low- and middle-income countries regarding because of overly restrictive legislation, if that's a barrier, would not marijuana also be a barrier? Well, certainly yes. That is the conundrum. So uh, it's not saying that I have a winning idea. It's just an idea that perhaps uh, is worthy of further exploration. Now, there is a way forward, however, nevertheless, and that's something that I will get to. And I th think that it will be helpful to inform um, the audience about, if we talk about first about marijuana policy in the United States, is it legal or illegal? Well, certainly it's illegal under the Controlled Substances Act because it's considered a Schedule I substance. And um, even though it's perhaps legal in your state for medical or even recreational purposes, it's illegal under the federal uh, statute. Now, I'm going to give you a very short um, version of scheduling history in the United States as it relates to marijuana. This becomes a hurdle to this idea of the global legalization of pain, but it gives you the backstory. Uh, to begin with, um, we started with prohibiting marijuana, um, at least uh, by federal tax legislation in 1937. Uh, Ansling had run out of things to prohibit. He, we had already just got out of the alcohol prohibition, so let's prohibit something else, and that would be marijuana. Of course, the problem with the, the uh, Marijuana Tax Act is, is that it effectively prohibited marijuana, even though if you would pay a tax, and it also subjected you to self-incrimination because you'd have to essentially let the government know that, yes, I'd like to pay a tax on the marijuana that I have. Oh, and by the way, I just told you I had marijuana, which is an illegal substance. So that created its own problems. In, in November 1968, Nixon was elected president, and he ran on a law and order campaign. The irony, of course, does not escape me. So uh, after the United States Supreme Court invalidated the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, uh, that was 1969. Well, what's the next year? 1970, and that's when the Controlled Substances Act came into being. And originally, the Controlled Substances Act was considered to be an open tent in that there was room for everybody um, on the entire um, spectrum. Um, unfortunately, as time went by, that no longer became the case. And in fact, when we realize about why marijuana is illegal or why we have drug policy, there's a variety of explanations. And um, this particular explanation is insightful as well because of its, um, the concern about racism. John Ehrlichman, uh, the former advisor to President Nixon and a Watergate co-conspirator who, of course, also went to prison, uh, let me see back here. He stated in a recent interview, he solved one of the great mysteries of modern American history. How did the United States entangle itself in a policy of drug prohibition that has yielded so much misery and so few good results? Now, this was cited, this interview was cited in Harper's as well as by the Global Commission in 2019. Well, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and later the Nixon White House had two significant enemies. The first enemy was the anti-war movement, the anti-war left, and secondly, it was black people. 
We knew, and I quote, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. So what happened was that Nixon realized is that I need to find some way to criminalize this marijuana now that it's been invalidated, and I need to get it in, as far as the Marijuana Tax Act in 1937, I need to find some way to get it into Schedule One. So he pointed... Um, Hats off to him for actually wanting to use science. And uh, he appointed a commission. It was the, the Schaefer Commission. But unfortunately, the Schaefer Commission found that uh, in 1972, the cannabis was safe as alcohol and recommended ending prohibition in favor of a public health approach. Well, that, of course, didn't go over well. Um, so what happened was is that uh, Nixon turned to the DOJ, the Department of Justice, of which what was then the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which would soon become the DEA. And he asked the head of the Department of Justice, which was a notorious individual, headed by his ally, Attorney General John Mitchell, hey, we've got to do something about this marijuana. We need to somehow get it into Schedule One. And, of course, they were successful in doing so. Of course, as you may recall, uh, marijuana was placed in Schedule One in 1972, and two years later, uh, Attorney General Mitchell was sentenced to 19 months in prison for Watergate for conspiracy, perjury, obstruction of justice. So you see, marijuana has its own checkered history about how it came about as far as it's being prohibited and how it became a Schedule One. Now the question then is that you might ask is, is that we have two types of marijuana, or do we? We have medical versus recreational or adult use. Some states have it recreational only, some states have it uh, medical. Uh, is there a difference? Well, that's a great research question. And the reason why I raise that is, is that right now what we're dealing with is largely anecdotal data because of the prohibition of marijuana for so long. We'd really like to have studies to see about what are its benefits, what are its risks, um, but unfortunately it has been impeded by its prohibition. So in fact, I, I hypothesize that even in some situations in which a person is using marijuana recreational, recreationally, I ask you is that could perhaps that person be self-medicating? So here we have actually a situation in which a person that is using marijuana recreationally may actually be wanting to use it for a medical purpose, something to consider. Now, of course, there's been barriers to the research of marijuana, which makes it problematic as far as recommending it um, and accessing it and evaluating it. Um, and I recognize that this focus, of course, is on medical marijuana, but we cannot ignore the recreational side of it either. As far as medical, in the United States, 33 states have some form of medical uh, marijuana. Now, they're not all the same. In one ways, we want to encourage states to innovate um, instead of merely having the same identical laws. But I would ask that if a state is going to innovate in that way, is just actually have a reason for doing so. Uh, secondly, as far as recreational marijuana, it exists at this point uh, in 14 U.S. states. Again, they vary uh, in, um, in different ways. Now, I will want to emphasize, of course, that marijuana, whether recreationally or medically, still remains illegal at the federal level. 
And the federal policy has largely been, as we've been able to trace, has been the punitive approach. What I would prefer, and this is just me saying this, is a public health approach um, to a drug policy in the United States. Now, as I indicated earlier, a lot of states are experimenting with these policies, and that should be encouraged because democracy is actually a system of government composed of individuals who are not sure that they are right. And so I think that we can all learn by a certain amount of humility to realize that we could be wrong about something. So it's, it's important for states to experiment in that way. Um, in fact, the United States Supreme Court recognized in 1932 the value of state experimentation as it relates to policies. They said the denial of the right to experiment may be fraught with serious consequences to the nation. So whether you agree with marijuana or disagree with the marijuana, realize that we're also learning about the good and the bad in the process. It is one of the happy incidents of the federal system that a single courageous state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. So experimentation among the states is a good thing. But the question that I have is, is that how does the federal government respond to this idea of state experiment? Not very well. They'd like things to be consistent for the way that they are for a variety of reasons. Uh, But nevertheless, despite the uh, federal government's opposition to marijuana, some states have been uh, successful in establishing through oftentimes ballot initiative uh, legalization of marijuana. uh, For example, like in the state of California, uh, the federal government um, took uh, physicians to task And although marijuana cannot be prescribed because it does not fit the definition under the rules of what constitutes a legitimate prescription under um, First Amendment freedom of speech, uh, the Ninth Circuit found that it is protected. Uh, Physicians, healthcare providers can recommend marijuana uh, without running afoul. Now, this is, of course, just the Ninth Circuit. Um, the United States is broken up into multiple circuits, across, multiple federal circuits across the United States. So really, this is only the law uh, in this particular district, which uh, circuit, which makes up California and uh, Hawaii, etc. Um, however, no other uh, no other cases have been advanced, um, so it's really kind of a detente at the moment. Then in uh, 2013, uh, there was, during the President Obama's administration, there was the Cole Memorandum from the U.S. Department of Justice, which essentially said, as long, uh, you know, we're going to kind of tolerate this from the states as long as uh, those violations which occur, uh, excuse me, that conduct which occurs in those individual states as long as they comply with their state law. And we'll take it on a case-by-case basis. So that was what the approach was in 2013. And in fact, the National Conference of State Legislatures found that as of today, only four states have no marijuana access laws, whether it be recreational or uh, medical. So it's, uh, the point in that is that if there's only four states that have not addressed that, that means that the horse is out of the proverbial barn as it relates to marijuana. But then along came Jeff Sessions. That kind of changed things. And uh, he rescinded the Cole Memorandum. 
and of course uh, upset a, a few t uh, teapots in, in the process. So now we're right back into this gray area again. So having said that, can you think of one word that best describes marijuana laws across the United States? Now you might be thinking of two words, but but just one word that, that best describes it in the United States. Yes, I do. That one word for today is labyrinth. And what is a labyrinth? It's a complicated, irregular network of passages or paths in which it is difficult to find one's way. In other words, a maze. And that's what we're dealing with here, and that considers to be a problem when we talk about this idea of global legalization of pain, uh, global legalization of uh, marijuana. In fact, however, uh, recently a per, uh, scholars have indicated the current status of cannabis use continues to present unique policy, regulatory, criminal justice, financial, and research concerns that can be addressed legally. Yes, they can be addressed legally, but the question then becomes, will they? That becomes problematic. Now, most of the time, we realize that our elected officials, they're not so much elected leaders, they're elected officials that are really followers. And um, they want to know where the tea leaves go. And so what oftentimes happens is that any type of change is grassroots, is that it starts with one person and it spreads, and this idea that maybe something needs to change. And that has, of course, have resulted in a variety of ballot initiatives across the United States because we started with medicinal marijuana and then now we've expanded to recreational marijuana in the states. We found that in some states using medical marijuana, there's certain listed conditions that it's permissible and in other states it is not. Now the irony of this is, is that it's a source of frustration is that Drug Enforcement Administration is opposed to to descheduling or downscheduling marijuana out of uh, Schedule 1 because there's just not been enough research. But the reason why there hasn't been enough research is in large part because it's been in Schedule 1. So we have a classic catch-22. And now, there is, uh, the government does grow marijuana for research. And in fact, it is so bad, one could wonder about maybe that's the way to eliminate marijuana use is just have the government grow it. Nobody would ever want to use it. And so that has created its own challenge, certainly in the terms of uh, research. Now, the National Academies, formerly of the Institute of Medicine, have done a recent research and published that you can find on the web. And they uh, recognized that one challenge was the paucity of high-quality data available to effectively address the topics of the study regarding the medical use of marijuana. But they did come up with some conclusions. For example, in adults with chemotherapy, induced nausea and vomiting oral cannabinoids are effective antiemetics. In adults with chronic pain, patients who are treated with cannabis or cannabinoids are more likely to experience a clinically significant reduction in pain symptoms. Now realize this is a work in progress is that what we would actually prefer are more robust studies, um, randomized trials, but it becomes a challenge to be able to engage in this research. Now, we've just most recently, as I indicated earlier today, is about the potential that hemp and its derivatives can make in the treatment of pain. And now that hemp has been removed from the CSA, we can see progress um, is uh, uh, the potential for progress. 
So what about what has resulted? When we talk about marijuana and medical marijuana laws across the globe, of course, all we do is we get a bunch of confusion. And because not only is it confusing in the United States, but that is certainly the case around the world. It is kind of like a mixed bag. But the Global Commission um, has a way forward about maybe solving this dilemma. Now, the Global Commission are not a bunch of what has been called hippies, but rather they're former heads of state of government, of res- certainly of respectable nations. They're well-known leaders from the political, economic, and cultural arenas um, that uh, have uh, composed of the Global Commission on Drug Policy. And what they argue, what they advocate for, are drug policies based on scientific evidence. Now, that's a new one. Now, that's something that I can get behind. Behind scientific evidence, human rights, public health, and safety. This may sound a little bit radical, but somehow it has the sound of reasonableness. Their purpose, of course, is to bring to the international level an informed science-based discussion about humane and effective ways to reduce the harm caused by drugs and drug control policies. Of course, this is kind of an my, my idea for a nonprofit would certainly be consistent with this idea of evaluating these empirically to see the positives, the negatives, and the unintended and intended impacts. The Global Commission goes on to say that they call for the ending of prohibition. Now, in one way is, is that some people argue, well, why don't we legalize everything? Well, that's not necessarily a good idea. Uh, the argument for the Global Commission is that re- these illicit substances should be regulated. And the, the an example I always like to use that doesn't have usually the hysteria associated with as illicit drugs is antibiotics. Antibiotics are available by prescription for good public health reasons. It has micro and macro concerns if we were to simply make all antibiotics available that you could get at the store over the counter. So there are good public health policy reasons for us doing so, and we can extrapolate that perhaps uh, to the same argument involving illicit substances, particularly marijuana. Now, one size does not fit all. So just like with the United States, we have different states doing different things, different schemes, different frameworks. The same thing is going to occur in, in foreign countries. And we, they recognize, of course, the Global Commission recognizes that we are kind of set up to fail to begin with because of the way that they classify psychoactive substances. For example, one way to think about it is, is that Schedule 1 has heroin in it, and so, does mar- so is marijuana. So is heroin and marijuana as, as dangerous as the other? So they, they say one way to perhaps you know, examine this problem is examine how we classify these psychoactive substances. So maybe we should start with cannabis. And uh, they certainly recognize in their publication that science, human rights, and public health, not ideology, is what should drive this debate. Because unfortunately, ideology and a variety of other things have instead driven the drug policy debate. Now, some things are changing worldwide, quite recently, actually. Uh, The World Health Organization, in such a radical group, Uh, makes uh, scheduling recommendations to the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. And in January 2019, they made history. They recommended rescheduling cannabis in international law for the first time in history. Of course, that did not last long. 
they made that recommendation in February 8th of 2019, and um, they then released this about a month later. The Commission on Narcotic Drugs at its ninth meeting on 19 March 2019, a month after this, decided to postpone the voting on the recommendations of the World Health Organization regarding the critical review of cannabis and cannabis-related substances. So a step forward and a step back. So they made this recommendation, and then a month later, they apparently got some pressure and say, well, why don't we put this on hold for a minute? But that was not necessarily a bad thing, because as soon as that happened, the, uh, the FDA, I've heard of them, they, uh, they have recently opened, as of August 29th, that was about a week ago, they've recently opened the open comment period where you can, for the next 23 days or so, uh, Google the following 84 space FR space 7064, and that essentially is the federal regulation, 84 FR 7064, and Google that, and you can make comments about your take on cannabis and descheduling. And so that's very important. And they published a notice. Uh, they initially published a notice with a 14-day comment period. Here now they've got a 30-day comment period. Now, oftentimes, government wants to be informed, at least you know in theory. And so they have these open comment periods where people can write comments and inform the government. Now, oftentimes in an open comment period, they'll give them 30 to 60 days. And they initially started with 14, and now they're giving 30 days. And that's far better, because originally when the CDC prescribing guideline was published, they gave 24 hours. So 30 days is far better than 24 hours. So you have the opportunity to participate in uh, rescheduling or keeping it as it is um, by making those comments, uh, and I would encourage you to do so. Now, what about some potential positive and negative outcomes of global legalization of marijuana? And we come up with this idea that we have people who are dying in pain um, in low- to middle-income countries because they have no access to liquid morphine, something that costs only pennies a day. And one of the challenges to those people getting that palliative care is certainly their geography, their rural location. So if you can't get morphine to them for a variety of reasons, is there something else that can help them, so to speak? And so the theory is, well, what about this idea of making marijuana legal across the globe? And they'd at least be able to have it nearby, and that may solve one problem, but could that create another problem? Well, of course, we recognize that if we have this maze which exists currently in the United States, um, across, the, across the United States as far as inconsistent laws or different laws, uh, and that has created a bunch of confusion. Could that confusion be exponential globally? I mean, look what the United States did, is that they're all over the map as it is. Could that create a bigger problem globally? That's a, kind of a, a rhetorical question. Um, secondly, the other challenge, of course, is existing treaties the 1961-1971 single conventions the UN makes uh, across the world with organizations in an effort to reduce um, uh, drug, uh, the intrusion of drug uh, crimes and uh, drug offenses. Now, of course, uh, further is we can expect some bumps on the road to reform. 
uh, you know, if whenever you want to change something, um, there's going to be mistakes that are being made. It's imperfect. Um, we can certainly learn from the good and the bad. So it's be, going to be expected it's probably not going to be a pretty sight. But ultimately, what are we in it for? Uh, well, what I'm in it for is re- reducing human suffering. Uh, it's not so much whether it be opioids, not so much whether it be marijuana, but this might be an opportunity to do that. Now, the one other thing of concern is, is that, well, you know, could not organized crime migrate, you know, from here we have uh, one industry that they're involved in, uh, marijuana, could they migrate to another? Well, perhaps the leaders of that organization might, but that's not to say that everybody that is involved in organized crime is going to go out and find something else in organized crime to do, because it's one thing to be a farmer and growing uh, marijuana, illegally, and you essentially are a member of the organization uh, because you're participating in the conduct. But those same people are obviously not going to go and engage in kidnapping, which is another organized activity, you know, in some countries. So certainly there's going to be some migration that goes on, but certainly not 100% as, as far as that's concerned. Now, the other positive thing, um, certainly, of a global legalization is, is that we get to do more research. Right now, there are significant research barriers to determine, really, what are the risks? What are the benefits of marijuana? Um, and so by having some type of legalization, taking it out of Schedule One, um, and not having um, us rely entirely on the government growth of marijuana to test, to, to conduct that clinical research and trials, would be a positive thing. Of course, the other benefit of legalization, uh, or really of regulation in some form, other than its prohibition, is, an, is a benefit to human rights and public health because right now the drug policy by and large is a punitive model aimed at punishment and using the carrot and the stick. Moreover, this might also, uh, as an idea, uh, help solve the rural access problem. I mean, if true, I mean, liquid morphine would probably be more efficacious to someone at the end of life, um, if, particularly when someone experiences breakthrough pain. Um, but when we're talking about marijuana, it's perhaps one thing is something is better than nothing at all. And then finally is, is that what we could do is when we're establishing all of these new policies, is those policies could actually be evaluated. How are they working? Um, how are they not working? These are the things in which um, organizations across the world um, should be asking. Now, finally is, is that Kind of like uh, this might be a wake-up call about the, about the necessity of reform. Initially, I was involved in my research years ago about um, end-of-life decision-making. And one of the areas, the controversial areas I conducted research in is at uh, assisted death. Again, I, I enjoy conducting uh, controversial research. I just don't want to be the subject of that controversy. But Dilliard and Hombrink um, had published a book and recognize that in Oregon, at least, uh, the Death with Dignity Act that passed in that state which permitted assisted suicide became a wake-up call to the medical profession that they needed to do a better job about treating pain. This was over well over a decade ago. So perhaps maybe the reform, the legalization, or the regulation of marijuana globally could be like a tide that raises all boats, is that it may solve some of the problems we're experiencing and could be a wake-up call that things need to be done in a different way. 
So I do have a new definition. We, we, I'm, I'm incorporating two things. Now, you recognize that the definition of an insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So when we incorporate insanity in drug policy, I think I've developed a new definition going forward. Insanity plus drug policy equals doing the same thing over and over again, but expecting different results while wasting billions of dollars and inflicting enormous suffering on each other. So my final comments are to help become part of the solution and emphasize three things. Number one, balance, not extremism. You know, they, you've, there's a science fiction film that, or a series that said the truth is out there. Well, the truth is really somewhere in between. And uh, oftentimes, because of the way things are, perhaps today, is that we hear an awful lot on the le- far left and far right and an awful lot of screaming, whereas really what we need to be is somewhere in the middle, recognizing the mistakes that we make and the positives and negatives of all of these arguments. So balance, not extremism. Secondly, science, not ideology. As a scientist, I certainly have a bias towards uh, this idea of empirical research, but uh, it's got to be transparent, and I think that will hopefully uh, win the day. And the final thing is focusing our drug policy on public health and not punishment, not the punitive model in which, which we have seen. Thank you very much. Now we have just a few more, a uh, few minutes uh, for any comments or questions. Yes, sir. Sure, yes. You can, uh, it's, uh, what, what it is, it'll, it'll hit on the federal regulation. I'll take you to the federalregulation.gov website. It's 84, the number 84, and then space FR for federal regulation, and then 7064. So it's 84 space FR and 7064, and you can also, you could also just Google International Drug Scheduling Convention FDA, and that should take you to the comment period, and then you can enter those comments. Yes, sir. It's, it's uh, well, the treaties are significant. It's a significant hurdle. Um, as far as global legalization, yes. And now there are, I'm not an expert in treaties, however, they are agreements among the state, and there's a little bit of flexibility in regards to uh, what a country can do. But actually, change, and in fact, some of these countries, for example, like Canada, when they legalized marijuana, it's still... Like individual states that legalize marijuana, it still violates the federal law. Like countries that legalize uh, marijuana, it still violates international treaties. But then what's the solution? What, what, what is ultimately going to happen? Um, it's not like uh, people are going to come in and arrest the country. And so the problem is, is that if you have a treaty that is no longer enforced, you know, it no longer has that power. So it's, it's difficult sometimes to change things but it still violates the treaty. It's, a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an issue. With the international treaty that you're describing, how can we then account for the British using heroin or diacetylmorphine for pain medicine? Don't know. Yes? Yes, under the Ninth Circuit. 
but realize that could ultimately be appealed if a proper case came before it. I mean, there's nothing to stop uh, the administration from creating another significant factual event in which that issue can be litigated. Now, you should also know that um, a particular president, I won't name any names, is not a big fan of the Ninth Circuit. And in fact, the Ninth Circuit is, uh, and this is empirical, is the most reversed circuit in the United States. The United States Supreme Court has reversed more decisions than, uh, in the Ninth Circuit than in any other circuit in the U.S. That's not to say that they were wrong. Um, and it, it, it matters actually about the issue before the court. Yeah, well, this, the CBD, actually, I had a talk about CBD um, earlier um, today. Uh, CBD, of course, is cannabidiol. It's a derivative. It can be derived from both marijuana um, as well as uh, hemp. And um, it's actually the, uh, the FDA said that it uh, prohibits its use, of course, um, in, uh, in food additives and for advertising and labeling as to its therapeutic benefits. And so that does create another problem. All right. Well, thank you.